Hey friends, if you are in the Atlanta area or somewhere close by, I want to invite you to a suicide prevention training that I'm hosting and putting on on November 14th. It comes with training and a certification that comes through the QPR Institute, and we'll be focusing on young adults, kind of college age, upper high school, things like that. So it's going to be a really informative time, and you will walk away with not only that knowledge, but also some certification, which is helpful for you. If you're interested, you can find information at robert-vore.com slash events. All the details are there as well as the option to buy tickets. So feel free, go on, check that out, and maybe even pass that information along to anyone you know who might be interested, someone who is in college or has college-age children or works with college students or is just interested in the basic principles of suicide prevention. That will definitely be in there. The information specific to kind of college-age students is kind of towards the beginning, but the, the basics of suicide prevention and the certification for suicide prevention will all be there. Again, that's robert-vore.com slash events. This show includes adult conversations around sometimes sensitive topics. Check the show notes at cxmhpodcast.com for trigger warnings. You're listening to the CXMH Podcast. CXMH is a podcast at the intersection of faith and mental health. Hey, welcome back to the show. My name is Robert Moore. I'm one of your hosts, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Dr. Holly <laughs> Oxhandler. Holly, how are you today? Hey, Robert. I'm doing great. <laughs> how are you doing? <laughs> Uh, I am okay. Yeah, that's yeah. I know we were just yeah. talking about this. I kind of hate yeah. saying "great" when you know. But tell me, tell me how you're doing. What's why are you at okay? Uh, there's just you know, kind of it's one of we're in one of those chunks of times where it seems like everything frustrating is kind of happening at once. I'm sure people can relate, but yeah, you know, I don't when I know my my default, and I think this is probably true of most of us. When someone says, "How are you doing?" you know, is to say, "Oh, I'm good." Yes. I'm good. Um, yep. And so it's, you know, for me, it's been somewhat of a goal to say, okay, if the person asking that is somebody that wants a, a real answer and mm -hmm. is someone that, you know, I trust, someone that has kind of earned that place in my life to, to answer honestly, you know? Mm -hmm. Yep. But so, you know, it's fine. It's, we're going, it's okay. It's okay. Nothing, you know, hugely life-threatening or anything like that, obviously, but you know, that's, that's, that's where we are. And that's all right. I don't know that this is particularly the space to talk about a whole bunch of it in depth, because, you know, mm -hmm. as we kind of talked about just now, there's, yeah. there's a difference between just blasting your, your problems all over and putting it in, you know, trusting people that, I don't know, that have earned this space to, yeah to hear about that kind of thing. So, you know, that's you right. and I talked a bit before this and even yesterday, some and whatnot. So, um, but, you know, in the spirit of honesty, I don't want to come on and say everything's great because, yeah. I think for, you know, plenty of people listening, most of the time people say that they're great and, you know, they think, well, everybody's always doing great except me, which isn't, yeah, isn't true, you know? So that's right. uh, just to be honest about it, not great, but you know, that's probably all we'll really get into as far as uh, specifics in, in yeah. terms of 
broadcasting it across the yeah. internet. No, that's okay. That's okay. And I'm honored that, you know, even for you to just be honest and saying, you know, I'm not great. I'm, I'm okay. Like, I think that that's, you know, I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm thankful for that. And I honor, you know, just you being honest. And I, it was, you know, and I feel the same way, which is why as soon as you said it, you know, you give that permission to be able to allow me to also be like, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm okay too. And it's, it's not, you know, perfect. It's not great. It's, it's not terrible, but you know, but like I had shared with you, I just had a a slight frustrating, (laughs) um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> technological issue. Yes. Yes. Um, that, you know, it just, it, you know, when that stuff happens, it's, it's, it's just, it, it's hard to navigate and I am not a super tech savvy person and I get frustrated, especially when I feel like it takes a lot of time that I could be using that time towards other things. So, so that was kind of the space that I was in before, um, we started our, our call a little bit ago. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, not perfect, but not terrible, but I appreciate the honesty. Yeah. There is, I mean, the, I know that in the Ox Handler home, we've got a few good things that are going on though, too. Like kind yeah. of a thing. Yeah. So I know that I uh, had put up a little bit earlier that we had, that at Baylor, we do something that's called treat night once a year. And it's basically like trick or treating in the dorm rooms with the students. And it's mm-hmm. so, so much fun. Like the students, I, I'm just so thankful for how much they, you know, go above and beyond for, for all these little kids who dress up and go trick or treating in the dorm rooms. And, um, and so we, you know, we had decided as a family that we are going to dress up as the characters from inside out. Mm -hmm. You looked awesome. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, we had a lot of fun with that. So I, I dressed up as disgust and Callie dressed up as joy. Oliver was anger. Um, and those two costumes were very intentional. (laughs) I love them both dearly, but they, they, um, they have been practicing those two characters well this month. Um, <laughs> Intentionally and, or not. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, Corey dressed up as fear, but he didn't want his whole face painted. And so he just walked in the room with the word fear painted on his forehead. I'm like, I love <laughs> He's in. And he had a purple shirt on. And yeah, so we had fun. And um, and we, you know, we love that movie in our home. We, you know, I've talked a lot about how emotions are something we talk about a ton with our kids and so that's that movie's on a lot in our home but um yeah yeah, we had a lot of fun with that good yeah your costumes they i mean they were awesome if you uh, i mean go check out holly's instagram and twitter and whatnot they they're awesome they're worth going to look at (laughs) well thank you friend are y'all doing anything with um gray in a couple weeks or Um, next week yeah we've talked about it some I get. I mean, we're not gonna like spend a bunch of money on a costume form. We have a couple right. ideas of uh, things that we already have and whatnot. Um, okay. But I mean, I and this is I said to Brooke. I said, is it socially acceptable to take this six-month-old child trick or treating? Mm. Because clearly he can't eat the candy. But then right. I would have a bunch of free candy. That's right. Uh, That's and right. so <laughs> I, the jury's out on that. I think. Uh, oh. But we have some other friends with you know, one and a half year old and things like that. And so maybe taking them around with them or just all getting together or something like that. But yeah, we haven't really decided yet. Yeah. No, I, I think, I can't remember what we did with, Ka- I think our first year with Callie, we, 
we dressed her up and we just used stuff that was around in the house, like exactly what you're saying. But I think she helped my parents like hand out candy. I think that's what we did, but we didn't, you know, at that point we didn't have friends with older kids. So, but I think, I mean, I don't know. I think that's awesome. Whatever y'all do, I want to see pictures. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what, this, this, episode will come out just, I think, two days before Halloween. So Mm -hmm. listeners, if you are listening, obviously, otherwise you wouldn't be listeners, but uh, (laughs) tweet tweet at us with a a picture of your Halloween costume. We want to see. I love Halloween costumes. Yes. Seeing people's, uh, you know, ingenuity and uh, inventiveness and things like that. So send us pictures. Me too. And whether it's, yeah, Halloween costumes or, you know, in the South, we have a lot of fall festivals, (laughs) events. (laughs) Um, so whatever it is that y'all are doing, I'd love to see that as well. So, yeah, well, Hey, we could not have swung. I don't think the pendulum between episodes any further than we are between last week's and this week's. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Last week's, obviously, if you missed it, please go back and listen to it. It, We essentially just laughed with uh, our dear friend, Steve Austin for an hour because that's just what you do when you yep. get around, you know, <laughs> friends that you you love and someone mm-hmm. uh, who you're that comfortable with. But this week, probably laughing less. Mm-hmm. Not to, well, I, so- I don't, I don't mean to like make light out of anything. No, 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 no. But I, and I was gonna say, I mean, and we're still, we're still dear friends with um, who we have on the episode this week. I mean, so I'll say we have uh, Dr. David Pooler is joining us for this week's episode. He has uh, done a tremendous amount of work in clergy sexual abuse and sexual misconduct, and 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 so he's come on to talk a little bit about you know his experience particularly with this research that he's done um looking at clergy sexual abuse um it, it's a you know certainly it's a it's been a heavy topic in our midst for this this whole fall i would say um and yeah. so and and especially when we recorded the episode it was right on the tails of some you know some some big news that had been uh, come out but um, but I think he does a really good job of unpacking, you know, what it is that we need to be thinking about, how we can be listening to survivors well, and, you know, making sure that, you know, we're we're taking steps to prevent abuse, that churches are preparing to respond in the ways that they need to be, that they're helping victims find healing, and also that there's some healing within the congregation. So he unpacks those really well. But it it definitely was a much heavier conversation, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, it maybe goes without saying, but, you know, we'll kind of issue a blanket potential trigger warnings if sexual abuse yes. is something in your past. I don't I don't believe I haven't gone back and edited it yet, but I don't think we get into, you know, specific or explicit descriptions or anything. But right. just something to keep in mind if that's something in your past or if you usually listen with kids in the car or something. I mean, uh, who knows? Uh, just a heads up there, which you probably guessed from the title of the episode anyway, but, um, you mm-hmm. know, we'll make sure to toss in the show notes a bunch of resources for uh, sexual assault survivors and things like that as well. Yes, absolutely. And I do want to say too, I'm I'm really thankful for the work that Dr. Pooler is doing on this area. Um, I mean, he, I mean, he'll talk about it in the episode, but just his intentionality of trying to lift the voices of the survivors is very apparent in his research. And, you know, just that intentionality, I think is really deserves to be celebrated seeing the work that he's done. Yeah. So with all that in mind, uh, we can go ahead and transition any, any final words for the intro there, Holly? 
No, no, I just, you know, I'm just going to reiterate what you had said that if this is something that could potentially be difficult to listen to, take good care of you. You don't have to listen Mm -hmm. to it. Taking care of you is most important. Um, If you are interested in listening to it, though, please definitely do. And and especially for those who are thinking about how to navigate this topic within their congregations, I think that that I I do hope that this episode serves, especially those who are in leadership positions in congregations. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we will go ahead and transition into our interview with Dr. David Pooler. All right. Enjoy, y'all. We are joined today by one of my dear colleagues, Dr. David Pooler. He is a licensed clinical social worker and the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs at the Garland School of Social Work at Baylor University. Um, Dr. Pooler has 20 years of practice experience with several populations, including at-risk youth, adults with severe mental illness, and persons with PTSD who have co-occurring substance uh, use disorders. Dr. Pooler is interested in human flourishing, um, safe spaces that promote healing, and the mechanisms and ways in which uh, recovery happens for people with complex trauma, especially um, and including among adult survivors of clergy-perpetrated sexual abuse. He is married to Cheryl Pooler, who is a social worker and a lecturer at the school as well, and they have two daughters in high school. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well. Good. It's great to be here. Yeah, well, welcome to the show. Yeah, so glad to have you. Is there anything else that that you want to add that perhaps I missed in uh, your bio? That was great, actually. That was just a nice little summary. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're super honored and grateful for your willingness to join us today, um, especially talking about a really timely but super sensitive topic uh, for a number of folks. So today we're going to be talking a little bit about your research tied to uh, clergy sexual abuse, which, as I mentioned, it, it does feel like a timely conversation. But I'd really like for us to just start off with getting a general understanding of what exactly this this topic is and what these words mean. So do you mind first, before we dive into too much with this topic, do you mind explaining what it is that you mean by this phrase, clergy sexual misconduct or clergy sexual abuse, and perhaps how it's different from sexual abuse uh, in general? Sure. So there are two terms that can be used. Um, You often hear the term clergy sexual misconduct. I actually prefer the term clergy sexual abuse because it captures the nature of the injury and it captures the fact that a church leader can do great harm to somebody. And, And really what we mean by this term is when a church leader, primarily a pastor priest, uses their position, role, or power to sexually exploit, harass actual sexual conduct with an adult in their congregation, or when they're actually using their position or power to gain access to someone, even if that person's not in their congregation, but they're using their role as pastor to do so. And I think one of the ways that this particular kind of abuse is possibly different than other forms of sexual abuse is some of the contextual pieces in in which this happens, Mm. because it happens in a church, and oftentimes the congregation is not as responsive or helpful as we might like. So what I've learned in my research is that there's, it's kind of a multi-layered trauma where you're being abused by a leader 
that's very difficult to deal with, obviously. And then the congregation has a hard time digesting and making sense of what's happened, tends to side with the leader and blames the victim. And so it, and what we're really talking about is, is abuse of power. One other thing mm-hmm. I would say about this is that many people will think of this as an affair because the victims in this case are adults. But that's just not possible for it to be an affair because that suggests consent. Mm. And Mm. there is no consent when someone under your care, you you are influencing them. What I know from my research is the pastors will use scripture, the language of the congregation, the language of the denomination to ever so slowly gain access sexually to somebody. And it's just quite devastating. So it's Mm. just a real misuse of again, the role, position, and power, and all the tools that they have at their disposal to, to basically gain access to a very vulnerable person in their congregation. So even though the survivor might feel like they participated in some way, that's really not true because mm-hmm. they were, compl- you know, in, in the interviews I did, I just heard story after story of how the perpetrator the pastor would basically use scripture and other things to say, you know, while people in the congregation may not understand what we're doing, it is actually biblical and okay for us to be sexual together. God approves of this. So at that point, you know, here you have the trusted leader telling this person it's really okay. I mean, it's just really difficult to override your own intuition that something's, I mean, is it okay? It must be the pastor's saying mm-hmm. it is. So that's why I say it's not an affair. One other thing I would say about that is oftentimes I think that churches and denominations skirt around it by calling it an affair because then it just becomes a moral slip. While it might be a, a pretty significant moral slip, it's just something that we all need to get over and forgive and move on. But that really discounts yeah. the nature of the, the, pa- the abuse of power and the harm to the person who was yeah. abused. Yeah. And I, I love the, the, the definition you're kind of working with here because I think a lot of times people maybe fall into this view of, well, unless there was you know, some, some type of threat of violence or something, then it wasn't really, you know, you weren't forcing anything. But I mean, just pointing out kind of the power differential and the way that that plays into it, I think is, is really important to, to kind of understanding how these things play out. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's spot on. So let me ask you, we have obviously a lot of questions, but just to start with, I mean, this is, you know, kind of a a heavier topic or one that, you know, a lot of people would kind of shy away from. What made you decide, hey, I'm going to research this. This is something that I want to spend, you know, a lot of my time looking into. Uh, What kind of drives that for you? Gosh, there's probably strands that weave into this through the years. Way back when I was a doctoral student, I was really interested in clergy persons and their own well-being. And then as I, uh, my social work training and just being a social worker for a while, I began to look more at context and systems, and then also just at victims and trauma. And I think at the intersection of all those, I just realized how important congregations are actually in the fabric of society. And Mm -hmm. just the reality that some congregations can be really healthy and helpful and supportive 
and transformative experiences happen there. Other congregations, really the context is just set up and it's ripe for abuse. And one of those things is just a, a lot of authority in that central figure and the congregation like implicitly just trusting. That's a real setup for this kind of thing. And so power sharing is really important and all that. But getting back to what you were asking about sort of how did I get there? I mean, I think it was just over the course of time in my career and then working with the founder of the Garland School of Social Work, the namesake, Diana Garland, and just learning more about how she viewed, you know, just having some conversation around with her around how this is not an affair. And honestly, I was, I was just intrigued by this. I'd had enough conversations with a couple of survivors who were interested in doing some research. And that's really how this research project launched was Diana Garland saying, hey, I know some people really want to do some research and maybe even interested in funding it. She said, I'd like to, you know, hand this opportunity to you. And I, I gladly did it. It was just at the intersection of a lot of things that matter to me, healthy congregations, dealing with trauma, dealing with recovery, dealing with mental health problems. And so it was at the intersection of all of that. And I, it's interesting kind of what's in me as you're asking that question really came after I started the research was once I started interviewing survivors, that actually just changed me. I would sometimes Mm. have to get off after an interview and just cry for a little bit. It was so utterly devastating that I really began Mm. to understand the impact on people and how important it is for congregations to respond. Even if the leader has done something horrible and has misused their power to abuse someone, the congregation hopefully could be healthy enough to help do some justice and restorative work with that survivor and other secondary and tertiary victims. And so that's, yeah, it's sort of a passion that was that has always been there. I've always been interested in help and seeing how congregations flourish, clergy can flourish, and then the vulnerable people in the congregation can flourish because there are lots of vulnerable people that come into congregations that yep. need care and support. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, so you started talking a little bit about this project that sure. um, Dean Garland, Diana Garland, and who you and I both cared very deeply for. Um, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more kind of about this project. My my understanding is that there you had gathered um, some data from around, it was around 300 survivors, I believe, um, yes. of clergy sexual abuse. So do you mind talking with us a little bit about the project? You know, what it is that that, that you did, um, what some of those key findings were uh, that stood out for you? Sure. So well, I wanted a mixed method project. And by mixed methods, there's a couple different ways you can collect data and analyze it. So I wanted one that would be quantitative or, or somewhat descriptive and just numbers like percentages of things. Mm-hmm. And, and then yeah. the other is these kind of thick, rich descriptions of the lived experience. And so I wanted a two pronged approach to just learn who these folks actually were that had been abused by church leaders and just, you know, what, how old they were, kind of the things that happened, their experience with the church, mm-hmm. their, their thoughts about their relationship with God, how the church was or wasn't helpful to them. And then I wanted to interview some people to really contextualize that and just ground 
those kind of percentages in real stories. And so what we did at the end of the survey is just asked if if you had a good, positive, helpful, or healing experience in your church, could would you be willing to be interviewed? And 27 people mm. did, but here's the reality. Most of them said, you know, this one little thing was positive, but most of it was pretty awful. The church just didn't know what to do. Mm. And could I still be interviewed or is that still appropriate? And I would, I eventually said yes to anyone who really wanted to be interviewed. And all of them basically had something that was positive, but it was mostly bad. And so that is a little bit about the study itself. So the study went out, the survey went out to two networks. One was called Hope of Survivors and the other was called the Faith Trust Institute. And it's just kind of support networks for people who've experienced this. And so it was a convenient sample, if you will, uh, just going to those networks. And there were some selection criteria. You had to experience the abuse at age 16 or older, and you had to have been 18 at the time of receiving the survey to participate. And I was primarily looking at women survivors, not men. Although we certainly this can happen to men and there yeah. can also be women who perpetrate it. It's primarily a phenomenon of males abusing females. So think, that, mm-hmm. sorry, do you think part of that has to do with the, I mean, kind of just the number of, I would assume the number of male pastors or the people, the, the number of males in, you know, leadership roles within churches, I mean, I would assume is, you know, far greater than women in leadership roles. Yes, that's exactly what it's really just capturing the the gendered nature of religious institutions, particularly in the United States and really globally, is that it's primarily men in leadership positions. And so that's really what that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm, that's good. So, Holly, you'd asked yeah. about some of the findings. And so yeah, I was yeah. going to just hit um, some of those. What's interesting is the average age of the abuser was 45 and the average age of the survivor was 30. It was a 15-year difference. And it's so interesting how many of the 27 people I interviewed, of course, that mirrored it in this 15-year gap. Most of the perpetrators were married, about 90%. And I also asked a question about just the legal side, like in as this as the abuse happened and as you reported that and made it known, were any of your abusers ever prosecuted? Unfortunately, only 4% were, which is very small. So, Oh my gosh. Yeah. So the majority and, and many of the survivors I interviewed just talked about how the pastor was moved somewhere else or remained in the leadership position, which is really disheartening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the other, I think, important findings from this is I asked people after this happened, you know, currently, now that you're doing this survey, how many of you would say that you're a part of a congregation? So two-thirds said they were, the other third said no. So what that also tells me is, you know, this is really, really harmful so that the congregation or just being in a church setting is triggering, doesn't feel good anymore, just has so much negativity attached to it that people no longer want to be in a congregation, which is really understandable. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's actually, that was one of my follow-up questions was, um, was I was curious if your research had looked at, you know, how the abuse was potentially impacting or influencing the victim's faith or their relationship with their higher power um, and just what these survivors were saying about that. So, right. There, well, yeah. I did ask about that and I was, I I was both interested in their relationship with God and their spiritual life. And it, it clearly did impact that, that their relationship with God was negatively impacted. Their experience with the church was negatively impacted. In fact, 80% felt like their spiritual life and their experience with the church were really impacted by that. And that's, I mean, of course, that only makes sense, but I think where what is intriguing about that is then what does that mean for recovery? How yeah. do then congregations make space for people to whom this has happened or for whom this has happened, where they they've been damaged, they've been hurt, their spiritual life is conflicted now. Their relationship with God, you know, and what I, the other things I would say in summary of, of around some of this the, is that their relationship with God is still intact in many ways, but their relationship with the institution is permanently damaged. Hmm. That's mm. almost the way. So I, I you know, hmm. w- what people were really telling me is my faith, I've been able to reclaim my faith and I still believe in God. God loves me but I no longer trust the institution to do the right thing. The institution seems like it just wants to protect itself and its image Mm. rather than truly come alongside and support and help a victim because they Mm. might have to then do some deeper looking. But image management, if you will, is really a big part of what I consider the problem and why churches don't respond very well is they're just more interested interested in how they look and appear than in doing what's necessary to help someone heal. Hmm. Yeah. That's so That's, good. It is so good. Well, that, so that actually kind of you're, <laughs> you're leading right into some of these questions sure. um, that we had mapped out really pretty beautifully. So, you know, as you're just talking about how the church is responding, my, you know, from, as I've looked at some of your work and, and we will share these links to, you know, some of the work that, that uh, Dr. Pooler has done, but I, had noticed that your survivors um, in your sample, they had some key suggestions that I'd like to, you know, for us to unpack a little bit and talk about. And so the first one, so I'll go through them real quickly that I saw was the first was taking steps to prevent abuse. Um, The second being preparing to respond. The third, helping victims find healing. And then the fourth being healing the congregation. So let's, let's start with this first one. So can you talk a little bit about what steps um, churches can take to prevent that abuse from occurring in the first place? Sure. Let me, and before I respond to that, I, you know, we were really intentional about wanting to use survivors' voices in this research, obviously, because a lot of research that had previously been done really looked at pastors and their qualities and characteristics and why they might do this. But to me, if you really want to get at solutions, ask the people affected. And so that's really what we did. One of the goals of this research was to develop a best practice guide. And so we asked very explicit questions. We're developing a best 
practice guide, what kinds of things do you think we need to include in this? And so what I'm about to share with you was distilled from, you know, mostly their suggestions. So here's a few things as far as being able to prevent abuse. And we know we can't prevent all of it, but I think we can do more to prevent it. One is just acknowledge reality that clergy sexual abuse can happen anywhere with any congregation. No church mm. is immune. Yeah. Your church is not the exception, nor is the current minister you have. And I think that's one of the things I hear people say, I know my minister would never do that. Well, yeah. it happens in those very congregations where people think it could never happen. And so that's the first thing. The next one is yeah. screening leaders, especially in congregations where the congregation is a part of actually hiring. Some denominations have a hierarchical structure where ministers are appointed. But either way, reference checks, you know, criminal background checks, those should be uh, very much included. Also, you know, just closed circuit TVs and just, you know, uh, uh, closed circuit TVs. Boy, that shows my age. You know, closed circuit video and other kinds of things. Um, yeah. But just ways to monitor hallways, rooms, offices, and that's just an, an additional layer of accountability, security on campus, and then even policies around what it looks like for the clergy person to interact with people in the congregations on and off campus. Now, I'm not, our guide doesn't get down into the weeds and say, this is how you need to do your policy, but it's what we need to be thinking about. So that's another way to, yeah. to frame what we're talking about. And then avoiding dual relationships. Really, only a licensed pastoral counselor or licensed counselor should do clinical counseling with someone in a congregation. Like that minister should never get into a deep relationship as far as helping like that. Uh, be, they need to know when to refer, you know, help in crisis, help short term, but know when to refer. Yeah. yeah. And then, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, well, go, do your last one and then I'll, I'll have an uh, interesting follow up question. Sure. And then the other thing is just education around how to do this. The hope of survivors I've already mentioned, Faith Trust Institute, darkness to light, keeping our sacred trust. These are all some websites and places that uh, a church could go to get resources, training for their pastor, other other things. Um, two other things I want to add is educate the congregation. Talk about it. Talk about a definition of clergy sexual abuse. Make sure it's that everyone in the congregation knows that it's always the a minister's responsibility to keep boundaries and maintaining them, yeah. and also the sharing power. I think if there's anything that really came through from the survivors that they said, this happened in places where there was no sharing of power. All authority and trust had just been given to one person, and the congregation really did not have much in place to hold anyone accountable. And so that sharing of power is really, really important, is really an underlying philosophy, I would say, of being able to, to prevent well, um, so you got you got there anyway, because I was going to ask, you know, a lot of these are really practical, you know, making sure that you can see in the hallways and stuff. But it seems like finding ways to mitigate kind of the power imbalance is kind of at, at the core of it. 
right? Because we have leaders, church leaders who, and I mean, you even said it where maybe there's not a bunch of accountability or, you know, people think, hey, I can't criticize this thing or that thing, or that would never happen here. Like it's offensive to even suggest. So that kind of creates this power imbalance where you, it sets it sets people up for these types of abuses and for kind of a lack of accountability. So the, you hit it there on the last one, but, you know, how are, what are ways you said, you know, kind of spread the power around? I mean, are there are there good ways of kind of mitigating that power imbalance? You know, this is interesting because I think that what has to happen is a congregation has to have enough of its own self-interest to say, hey, we need training. We need our leaders to be trained. We need, for example, you know, someone in the congregation that is a safe place and is knowledgeable about this. So I think it is it's the congregation having enough self-awareness and and a sense of agency to begin to put in place. And honestly, things like requiring the pastor to have a sabbatical, requiring the pastor to have certain amount of vacation days, requiring time off, requiring even the pastor to uh, have a therapist or have a support group of his or her own. Those are things, interestingly enough, that I think would prevent this that we often don't think of And sometimes congregations really do have unrealistic expectations of their pastor to be godlike and sort of this almost mediator between God and the congregation. They're not quite a congregant, but they're not quite God. But I hate to say it, that's just false. The fact is that pastor is as human as anyone in that congregation. Until a congregation really digests that, I think there's a potential there's a risk involved. And I think just digesting and really sitting with this person is a human, just like me. What do we need to do to support them? What do we need to do to hold them accountable and make sure they have the support they need to do a good job? And then what do we need as a congregation to create a safe place for vulnerable people? So yeah. that's that I, I hope that's tangible enough, but I, that's some of the thinking I have around that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, that's so good. So, even, you know, we can take every step possible to prevent abuse. And I do love, you know, that you had mentioned that these steps that you had just gone through really were born out of these conversations or these conversations with the survivors. And so having their voice in this is, is crucial. But even when we take each of these steps, there's, I'm sure there's still the possibility of this occurring. And so when an instance of abuse is a rate like is raised within the church, what recommendations do you have for, you know, how the church should respond or react or, you know, begin to engage in um, next steps? Right. So some of the, just the things that someone would need right away is call it what it is, if you will, that this is clergy sexual abuse. Someone needs to call it, name it, and define it for that congregation. And again, if you have a healthy congregation, there's already been some talk about this. So that's the first thing. Call it what it is. There, you know, and maybe early on there's been an allegation of clergy perpetrated sexual abuse. And so, and I also think churches need to have a victim advocate. I kind of alluded to that just a few minutes ago. But someone that is really a designated person in the congregation that someone could go to. And Mm. I also think a crisis response team that might be include a victim advocate, but someone who can respond, they can offer immediate support, 
believing the victim, focusing on the victim, helping them feel safe, and using a trauma-sensitive lens and understand how trauma might affect someone and how they might react to trauma. Because oftentimes people who are traumatized don't behave in ways that we might expect. Um, sometimes there's memory loss, there's other things. And so just because someone may have some difficulty remembering something doesn't mean it didn't happen. Or if they really have difficulty talking about it, it doesn't mean that maybe they're trying to make something up. So those are just things I think that congregations need to have. And also, you know, it's easier for a larger congregation, but to have an actual abuse investigation team to deal with this mm. so that can interview everyone involved, ask hard pointed questions, especially of the perpetrator, objectively gather all facts from the victim, the accused offender and witnesses, and just make some determination of whether there's evidence that this happened document the process and the findings and recommend some action about being disciplined or removed. I, in, a, in, a, in many of these cases, I really do think someone needs to be removed from ministry. And most of the cases when this yeah. happens, it is just not okay for them to continue. And, and part of it comes from my lens as a social worker. I have a license. And if I were to sexually abuse or have sexual interactions with a client, my license would be revoked and I would no longer be practicing social work. I mean, it just, it's a loss of my career. And too often in churches, we just move people around or they go to a six month thing and then they get returned to another church. I just, I don't think we're taking this seriously enough. So anyway, that the uh, abuse investigation team is, is the last thing that I think, you know, as churches are getting ready to respond, some of the things that need to have on board, victims advocate, crisis response team, and an, an abuse investigation team. Now, I know that's not the area of expertise for churches, and that's why I offer this best practice guide for churches to begin to think about having this kind of inner functioning, if you will, and group of people who can just get in and find out what reality is. Yeah, so, that's... that's- yeah, that's no, no, I was gonna say that's super interesting because uh, to me, right, and this is not my, my area, but you know, it seems to me like part of why, you know, maybe there's not prosecutions or we're not taking it seriously enough or whatever, it seems like, you know, the, the correct, and this is, you know, I'm not arguing with you, but it seems like my first instinct would be if something like this were to happen, that call the police and they investigate, like that's what they do is they investigate this type of thing, right? Because, and this may just be where I'm coming from, but you know, when I hear like, oh, like internal investigation team from the church, to me, I get kind of like, uh, like you're investigating yourself. Those people probably yes. somewhat report to the pastor or, you know, yes. and so if we, if we said, Hey, maybe we'll do that. But also, you know, in any other scenario, if there's a sexual yeah. abuse, we call the police, you know, mm-hmm. is that, would you agree with that? Or, you know, is that just me being like hesitant of kind of internal investigations? Cause I feel like no. so often we, we, yeah. <laughs> those don't turn out how we would say maybe we're, we're um, fair or unbiased. Right. Well, I think what I'm getting at is a workaround. I mean, I'm, I'm a skeptical and a little uh, worried about an internal investigation too because if it is a a place where there's a part of it is i think if a church has created something like this it's healthy um it's one of these abuse investigation teams that might be appointed by a group of people super loyal to someone that that's really the problem but let me say this that gets at i wish we could call the police i wish we could but there are only 13 states that actually criminalize 
the abuse of an adult in a congregation by a pastor. Mm, so wow. most places wow. where this can happen, it w- the, calling the police will do nothing. Mm. So that's one of the reasons I've I've I have this. Yeah. So so, so mm-hmm. can I wait? I'm gonna pause real quick. So so they don't criminalize it if it's coming from a pastor. But say if you know I was sexually abused, you know I don't know at at a friend's house or something like that. Something happened, and I called the cops. Charges would be pressed, but but in a church that's different, is that? And, and part of what I'm getting at is with okay. adults. So of course, if a pastor abuses someone under the age of 18, that can clearly that falls under laws. Every state has laws to deal with that, whether it's a pastor, adult, school teacher, social worker. But when it comes to someone in their role as a clergy person, and let me clarify something else. Of the 13 states that criminalize it, most of those, over half, it's about in a counseling relationship. And the other thing I know from my research is that about half the time, this happens outside of counseling. Actually, Texas, where I live, has one of the best laws on the books because it says that any time a pastor or church leader is is in their role and they abuse, sexually abuse, or assault someone, it, it's against the law. Whether it's in a counseling mm-hmm. relationship, or they're saying, I'm just discipling somebody. So mm-hmm. I, I, Texas and Minnesota have the best laws. But this is a tough one. You see, it's just not, yeah. haven't gotten in this into our DNA that this is a serious problem. And it should, I think if it were criminalized in all 50 states, that that, that would be a deterrent. I really do. Not well, for it's- every case, but it would help. And it makes me, I mean, I'm just thinking, you you know, David, you've made these great parallels in thinking about your role as a social worker and certainly in, you know, in other helping professional roles, there's, it similarly can be criminalized or, you know, thinking about, you know, a, a professor with us, an adult student or just those power, those relationships where there's that power difference. Um, it's just so interesting to see how this has, this is not seen in the same way as those other power relationships yeah that, so that, i guess it yeah maybe it's maybe it shouldn't be that surprising I don't, i'm like yeah that when you said that i'm i'm still processing because that's that's i don't know i don't have a good word for it but man yeah but i'm glad we're talking about it i mean that's 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 why you know it's so good for us to be having this conversation and and thinking about this and processing it as long as it may take for it to, <laughs> for processing um, right absolutely yeah so healing is certainly, you know, such a big part of this process, though, too. So, you know, once once this has been identified, you know, you really highlight the factor. You're, you know, the survivors have really highlighted the fact that healing is a, a critical part of this process. So, you know, what recommendations do you have um, for the victims and as well for the congregation when it comes to to healing and and processing all of this? Sure. The first thing out of the gate is believe. Believe and affirm until there's some evidence that uh, the report is inaccurate. And, and I would just say, people don't make this up. This is not something that someone, it, I would just say it takes enormous courage for people to even bring this up and report it or say something happened. It is so difficult. So when they do, the church needs to say, yes, we believe you. What can we do to help? And that's the other thing. What can we do to help? Uh, Immediately offer resources. Where do 
basically a church just needs to know where to immediately send someone for counseling, for yeah. support, other resources that can be immediately accessed by that person. And encourage them to seek as much support as they need. Like, we're here for you. We support you. Again, yeah. I mentioned just a few minutes ago about using trauma-sensitive language and also just res- trauma-sensitive responses. Just really understand yeah. what trauma is. And I, I don't want to go into sort of all the nuances of what that actually is, but, I mean, that, that could be a whole other episode, you know, on yeah. what is trauma. But, yeah. <laughs> but the... Uh, and also just say, hey, this is tough. This is going to be really difficult. Just acknowledge and affirm the reality that this whole process of, being, of, of what has happened to them and the fact that they are now reporting it and, and making it known and, and sort of that what will happen from here is going to be very difficult. Both their own healing and how the church deals with it is going to be yeah. tough. Again, provide an advocate. I mentioned that. And also, if the victim's a woman, which, you know, the likelihood is very great that it would be, just be sensitive to her gender and have another woman present in conversations or meetings. Um, Don't just have a a group of men surrounding a woman who's just been victimized by a man. Have another woman there. And then one final thing, or a couple more things, is uh, the Stockholm Syndrome, which is some of these folks... they they're they've been abused in such a way that they feel an enormous amount of loyalty to the person who's abused them and may even defend them so even though something may come out just because they they're loyal or they defend it does not mean that something awful didn't happen in fact i think the more you see that the more it's evidence that something really awful did happen yeah. and Protect the victim from the offender in the sense don't oh, don't ever force meetings between the victim and the a person who's been accused of harming them. Yeah, and don't ever silence the victim. And that has often happened. Like, no, you can't really talk about this in the church. So many of the twenty-seven folks I interviewed, they so many times they were asked to just shut down. They couldn't tell anyone. Keep this a secret. And again, that's just part of an unhealthy church. Sort of yeah. don't talk, don't feel, you know, don't yeah. respond to this. Just stuff it. A thing that was really important is keep the person in the congregation if that's if they want to stay there, and make sure that it's as safe a place as possible. Communicate with them about what's happening. They need to know how the process is going to unfold. Involve the victim and how information will be communicated. What information the victim might like to be shared in the congregation. And to whatever extent is possible, protect the victim's story and identity if that is what the victim wants. And then a really important thing also that can be done is just pay for counseling. That's just a given that the person is going to need help. And they shouldn't just say, oh, we'll pay for you to go to five sessions. You know, it's we're going to pay for you until you really are back on your feet and feel like you are somewhat whole again. Yeah. yeah. And all of this, you know, kind of stems from believe the person. And then, yes. you know, all of this we're talking about, we, we had an episode with a trauma therapist named Andy Colbert a while back. And she talked a lot about how, you know, when people encounter trauma, what they need are safe spaces and the importance of our churches and our, our ministries and our faith communities being safe spaces, which is a lot of what you're talking about here. Yeah. Because what's yes. interesting is you pointed out at the beginning that, you know, a lot of the people you talked to ended up leaving their congregation but they still maintained some type of relationship with God, which means that, you know, it was the congregation that they saw as this place isn't safe. This place isn't, 
you know, yes. what it's supposed to be, but I can still hang on to God. So, so they're not representing God in the way that they should be. Absolutely. I, 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 the way you just described that, I, I absolutely agree with. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Well, what about, so, so these are great things in terms of thinking about, you know, helping and walking alongside and uh, with the victims as they're healing. But what about with the congregation? Because certainly as well that, you know, after, after something like this, you know, comes to light as traumatic as it is, the congregation then is wrestling with, okay, what do we, what do we do? We didn't, you know, I can't believe that this was happening. So, so what does healing look like for the congregation and what recommendations do you have for the congregation? Sure. You know, the, again, the victims that I interviewed, they, they knew that there were so many others in the congregation that were also wounded. This was hard for everyone. And so I think that's really important. Understand that when this happens, you have a lot of secondary victims. The congregation, you know, may even wonder, how do we let this happen? What did we do? But just being able to understand that they're all going through something really difficult together and that other people, even other leaders, may uh, have, you know, have been harmed in some way because of what the church leader did, even if they weren't directly abused, but just the the power dynamics or other things that set this up. I mean, so people just need to come to grips of with sort of a collective woundedness, I think is really important. It's just almost too easy to say, oh, it happened to one person, but no, it's happened to us. And also, I mentioned this earlier, but reiterating again, call it abuse. So when this has happened, the congregation needs to know this is clergy-perpetrated sexual abuse. And the pastor has misused their role, position, or power to harm someone sexually. It just has to do that. Help the congregation figure out what they can do, because so many times it's awkward. What do we do? What do we say? And sometimes because people in the congregation don't know what to say, they don't do anything. And so, and and I've also mentioned the victim said, and many times the congregation pushed someone out in in the middle of this, just couldn't Mm -hmm. deal with them being in their midst and did a lot of blaming and they slow, you know, eventually had to leave. But help that congregation figure out how to help them stay and support them um, and, and figuring out, even if it's just praying and just, continuing to smile and put their arm around somebody that can go a long way because it's in direct contrast to what I heard victims say of, you know, people looking down, not making eye contact with them, ignoring them when they used to talk to them. Those things are incredibly hurtful to someone. So stay, you know, just continue to keep that person in their midst. And then I think another thing that needs to happen is an apology to the congregation that whoever the, the structure of leadership in that church needs to say, you know, this happened on our watch. Something happened that we missed, and we need to take responsibility for it, for yeah. this institutional failure, and make an apology and pledge to take actions that are needed to prevent something like that from happening, and, to how to, and that will support everyone until this congregation is in a more whole place. Yeah. One of the things I will say, I know that many churches get legal advice from lawyers that say, if you apologize, that you're admitting you did something wrong. So sometimes being Christian and doing the right thing and doing justice is in direct opposition to legal advice, which says, don't own it, don't say it, don't admit it, 
because you might get sued. So I think sometimes churches just have to do the right thing regardless of the consequences. Yeah, that's really good. That's so good. Well, thank you for kind of unpacking each of these. Um, if you would like to connect with Dr. Pooler, you can find him on Twitter or on Facebook at DK Pooler. Um, if you'd like to connect with Robert Bohr, you can find him at robert-bohr.com or on any social media platform at Robert Bohr. You could find me at my website at hollyoxhandler.com or on Twitter at hollyoxhandler. David, thank you so much for joining us today, for walking through you know this difficult conversation with us. Is there anything else that you'd like to add before we wrap up? You know, I think the thing I would actually like to speak to any victim that may be hearing this, which is you may think you're alone. You may think that you're the only one that this has happened to. That is absolutely not the case. It has happened to a lot of people. That doesn't make it okay. It just validates that you're certainly not alone. And there is help available. And, you know, I think there is an awareness. Society is at a place where we recognize how this is happening in lots of different places and the church is not immune. And I just want to thank the both of you then for inviting me on to share about this really important work. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank Thank you, you, David. And I think that's a great way, you know, to, to, uh, and to wrap this up by addressing um, those who may have uh, struggled with this or been impacted by it. Um, We will have some resources in the show notes, um, a link to uh, some of Dr. Pooler's research and some, just some additional resources to, to look into. David, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I I hope you have a great week. Thank you. You all have a great one too. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the CXMH podcast. Want to score some major brownie points? Leave us five stars and an honest review on iTunes. Follow us on social media at CXMH podcast and email us with questions, comments, and interview requests at CXMHpodcast at gmail.com. A final note. If you're in a dark place today, struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. Professional help is available 24-7 at 1-800-273-8255.